This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew, where we serve a weekly menu of industry commentary based on what the market has to offer. I'm Andrew Friedman from Tokeland.com. And I'm Jimmy Bradley from The Red Cat. Uh, before we introduce our guest, Jimmy, can I just take a moment to say how much I love New York City? To please, please elaborate. Uh, we're Do you have here, the uh, John Lennon well, t-shirt on today? I don't have, I should have worn my John Lennon t-shirt. I don't have one, but if I had one, I should have auto-worn it. All right, don't get one. That's my Christmas present. So you. we're here, you know, uh, this being a podcast, people may be listening to this at a different, probably most likely are listening to this at a different time, but it is February 9th, Thursday, 2017, as we sit here live. Uh, we're in the middle of a... I think they keep changing the category. Uh, I think it's now just a, a snowstorm, but it has a name, Nico. No way, does uh, it? It does have a name. Um, and schools are closed all over the tri-state area. Um, businesses are closed left and right. But, you know, the trains are running. Commuters are commuting. Um, the city's running. Uh, we're here in the back of Roberta's, and the cooks are... The cooks are cooking. They're cooking. They're getting ready for lunch service. The uh, show goes on. The show goes on. Um, in, in, so in our business, at least. I love uh, New York City, and I'm reminded of that today. And I love being around, you know, I can't say it's my industry. I just write about it. But this is why I love being around guys who do what you do. Um, it's great. Right um, on. You know, I was at Wild Air Restaurant last night, and all over the place, people were getting emails that their offices were closing and I asked you this morning if that was even a consideration, <laughs> and you said, not really. <laughs> Nothing like that. Nothing like that. But so. It makes you wonder, you know, do you think uh, the doctors and nurses were sitting around going, oh, do you think we'll not have to go to work tomorrow? Should we have an extra drink? You know, there, there's other people besides, uh, there's other groups of people and jobs besides us, uh, us restaurant people that adhere to the show goes on mentality. Well, I I just love it. I love it. You know, one of the my favorite lines ever was, you know, in the in the early pages of Kitchen Confidential, um, you know, when Tony Bourdain was kind of transitioning from chef to cook or being a uh, chef to writer, you know, or kind of was a chef and also a writer for years. Um, and, you know, was trying to think about how I, he identified himself and he still identified as a cook. And, you know, there's this great line that I love, which was, if I need a favor at four o'clock in the morning, this is Tony's words. Whether it's a quick loan, a shoulder to cry on, a sleeping pill, bail money, or just someone to pick me up in a car in a bad neighborhood in the driving rain, I'm definitely not calling a fellow writer. I'm calling. <laughs> That's because my... he didn't know you, Andrew. Well, yeah, I, I'm kind of a wimp about that. I would this call is why. I, yeah, I would call my. You chef. might be my. I second, would call my. Chef, might be my I, second. Call. I, even I would. I would, as a writer, would call my chef friends. But um, <laughs> anyway, the other line that I love, and it really to me sums up the energy this morning, is you know, in the movie Tootsie, Bill Murray gives a completely improvised performance, uncredited. Um, you know, but he says, I wish I had a theater that was only open when it rained. 
You remember this line? Yes. I don't want a full house at the Winter Garden. I want people who just came out of the worst rainstorm in history. Um, these are people who are alive on the planet. Yes. I love that line. Well, you know, the show goes on for, for some of us. So all of this is to say we're really appreciative of our guest, uh, Chef Daniel Eddy, who's sitting here with us, who came, you know, brave the conditions. Uh, welcome, Daniel. Hello, hello. Uh, we, we just met for the first time. And yeah, yet, unbelievable, you know, and, right? And, you know, um, uh, this is, to me, just proof of everything we were just saying. You know, we, there was this question. Uh, I know everybody, people, other people, hosts at the network were wondering, or, you know, are we still having a show? Or are a guest going to come in? And we were like, you know, we're a chef show, and, and right. uh, we're pretty confident, even though this isn't like an old friend of ours, that you'd be here. And sure enough, we were doing our prep at the Swallow Cafe around the corner, and, and you walked about three minutes before we were supposed to meet, and all was well. Not just a, a badass cook, but a badass individual. <laughs> so, uh, Daniel, uh, for people who don't know, is the chef of Rebel Restaurant in New York City. Uh, Rebel is coming up... Uh, maybe a month and a half or so on its second anniversary. Wow. <laughs> right? April? Yep. April, yeah, April 20th will be our two-year. Uh, right. Two-year. You guys opened in 2015. Yeah. How about that? That's, that's uh, the Red Cat is uh, an April, an April birth as well. <laughs> and uh, the restaurant uh, is in downtown Manhattan. It is the, I would call it, I guess, the sister restaurant to Pearl and Ash, which uh, was opened by Brendan McRill and Patrick Capiello, am I saying that right? Yep, Capiello. Uh, that restaurant opened in 2012. Um, there's a couple of changes that you guys just in the last week uh, have instituted at Rebel that we'll talk about. Um, uh, but before we get to that, can we, uh, how do you, this is an interesting question. How do you, you know, Rebel, when it opened, was sort of cast as a part of this bistronomy uh, movement um, is that how you think about it? And, and how do you, uh, th- that's a term that's been around for a couple of years now? It originated in in France. Um, what does that first of all? What does that term even mean to you? And and do you can do you guys feel like you're part of a movement? Well, I don't know exactly what it means here <laughs> in New York City. Um, I'm also not quite sure which are the other restaurants that are put into that category. Uh, it seems to be that some of them are similar to. Uh, to rebel, but with French names such as like Racines, perhaps could be lumped into that category as well, where there has the roots to Paris. Um, but the years that I spent in Paris, there was that sort of uh, bistronomy um, movement, and I think what that really was about was, you know, taking classic technique or just taking an elevated uh, knowledge of food and putting it in a much more casual space, stripping the tables of the tablecloths and the expensive silver and the crystal glassware and putting the same good food, the same great product onto a plate that was perhaps not a Bernadeau, but it, it did the trick because the importance was what was on the plate more so than the surroundings. Right. You, uh, we should mention you, you were the chef de cuisine for a time at spring restaurant in Paris. Yeah. yeah, Sous chef over there for, well, I opened it up in, I guess, 2010 and was there for three years. So it was uh, that was my um, my education. You know, Daniel Rose very much schooled me. Uh, he himself a historian, and that knows so much about French cuisine. You know, it was I couldn't have found a better restaurant to actually understand the the foundation of French cuisine. And the irony in all that was that he's an American. So right, and Daniel Rose, uh, who you just alluded to, is now chef of Le Cuckoo, mm-hmm. uh, not that far. 
geographically from where you find yourself uh, at Rebel. Close enough for us to get lunch on a whim. Yeah. So how? let's talk about that for a minute. You spent a couple of years in, in Paris. How did you, um, you know, as a young American cook, you're from New York City, you grew mm-hmm. up in, in East Harlem. Uh, how did you find yourself over there? And what was that experience? You know, the, 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 the sort of cliche is that as an American you know, just even getting into a French kitchen, you're sort of at a at a deficit and maybe kind of a second class citizen a little bit. And you guys were, you know, these the two American young American chefs doing your thing at a, a place with an American name uh, in the in the heart of classic French cuisine. Uh, what was that like? Well, the whole Paris came about kind of by accident. Um, when I first started cooking, I was cooking on the Upper West Side at a place called Oneta. Uh, which was a chef by the name of Michael Salakis. And uh, one day, uh, a guy by the name of Alain Ducasse comes into the, the restaurant, and my chef starts freaking out, and he's pacing up and down the kitchen. He's cursing. I have no idea who this person is. You know, I'm green and have been you know, a stagiaire for all of maybe a couple of months. And so obviously I knew that there was a, a per- person of importance. Um, the following year, we opened up another restaurant, and that one was called Dona, and this guy comes again, Alain Ducasse. And again, the chef is freaking out. He's yelling, everything better be perfect. I put up my dish. He looks at me. He goes, this better be perfect because you're cooking for the best chef in the world. So I thought to myself, well, hell, you know, if this is the best chef in the world and he's come to two of my chef's restaurants, maybe I should go look to work for this guy. So uh, I made that decision then to that, you know, after working with Mike, I would sort of uh, travel to Paris and work for Alain Ducasse. Figured it would be easy, you know. He's been to two of my chef's restaurants. Why not? Why not? It seems to make so, sense. So uh, I... Uh, It'd be nice to own a newspaper. Yeah. So I packed, uh, packed my bags and went to Paris. Uh, no visa, no knowledge of the French language, really no clue whatsoever of what I was doing. Um, and yeah, I got to Paris and every single door was closed. Just people were like, nope. You don't speak French, no recommendations, no visa, nope, nope, nope. And it wasn't until a friend of mine had told me um, that I should check out this restaurant called Spring, that there was this American guy, and I was like, oh, American, I can speak English to him. Um, And so I I called up uh, the restaurant, and Daniel Rose picked up, asked him if he had a reservation for that night. He laughed because, you know, I had no idea that it was booked out for six months. It was a 16-seat restaurant with a set menu that was only open five days a week. Um, He laughed, and... It was just like, well, somebody just did cancel. So if you can find one other person, I'll give you the table. Call me back you know, in a couple hours and let me know if you can come bring, bring somebody else. Uh, so I called him back and uh, hadn't found anybody. And he was like, okay, just come in anyways. Right. Um, and that's what led to me meeting him. And uh, I, I muscled my way into that sort of kitchen. It was just him and his uh, now wife cooking in there. And uh, I cooked with them for two months. And in that time, he's like working on the new project and asked me if I had any interest in moving back to Paris. Asked me to commit to him for a couple of years, and you know why not? I guess, and so that's ultimately what led me back to Paris. You know, this time with a visa. <laughs> right. What was that? What was the experience of being, you know, an American in that restaurant in that city? I mean, a lot of us have read a lot about that restaurant. I, I've never, I've never eaten there. What, what was? How how did you all fit into that city? I guess is the way I would put it. Were you were you did you feel like were you a little bit of a curiosity? Were you no, not uh, so much. I mean, he had already established himself of doing you know solid food in this restaurant, and you know had great you know rapport with uh, the Parisians and the Americans as well that were coming to visit Paris. So 
you know, he had already been embraced by the city and people were appreciative of what he was doing. You know, it was a set menu for 35 euros back then of really great food. The value was uncanny, nothing else like it. So people were thrilled that, you know, he was expanding and now he wouldn't have to wait six months for a reservation, perhaps only three. And uh, so for me, the most intimidating thing was that I was just in a foreign country cooking a food that I'd never cooked before and really had no clue again of what I was doing. It was just sort of throw myself into the deep end and Hopefully I'll figure it out and not get beat up too hard, you know. Right. And you, we were talking a little bit before the show. You made a decision when you were working for Michael uh, to not go to culinary school. Yeah. Um, it would seem to me that then finding yourself in Paris, um, I mean, doing, a, I guess, a personalized French cuisine, but still spending some time. Uh, you know, a lot of the building blocks of that food are very classic. Um, oh, the, the that, bookshelf. That must have been... Um, in a way, a cooking. In a way, it was like going to cooking school, but at the same time, getting that sort of practical, ass-kicking, you know, real-world experience that you can't really get in school. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the bookshelf that we had in the kitchen was all of the classic chefs. You know, there wasn't as there wasn't you know a modern or contemporary book. There wasn't Noma. It was Escoffier, and then like that's what the roots of it all was. So that's that was sort of my education. And, and, you know, we would dive into like books of like the 60s and 70s and find these recipes and figure out a way to sort of make them feel a little bit more contemporary and, uh, and a bit more alive so they didn't seem dated. Uh, but the, the foundation of that was, you know, the building blocks and the foundation of the French cuisine. So as you're spending going along there, how do you, uh, you know, what was your own evolution? You know, you you as you kind of come to your own style, right, and then you come back stateside and, and you end up doing, you know, uh, a restaurant here, what was your own evolution? Were you sort of doing the classic thing of, like, keeping a, a notebook uh, with ideas? Like, how did you start to think about what you might be doing when you were sort of, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the exec chef spot you find yourself in today? What was that evolution like for you? Uh it was a lot of, I guess, exploration. Um, there wasn't a notebook. There were a lot of like loose leafs, pieces of paper that I would just scribble on and write things down and elements that I would cook and sort of think in my head that this could you know, probably work out well. A lot of looking at old school French dishes and taking that sort of same philosophy that, you know, we worked with at Spring of, you know, take something that's tried and true and, you know, take ownership of it and, you know, play with it a bit to make it, you know, not the same that it was. Um, you know, they're coming to New York City and open up a restaurant, you know, for anybody is, you know, a very daunting task. Um, and my priority more than anything was to make sure that what we were putting out was good, solid, tasty food, you know, that at least that couldn't be argued. Perhaps people would take a knock on the style or the space, but at least the food was seasoned well, executed well, and something that perhaps they would want to return to. And, you know, once you're out of that period of time where you're so worried about the critics, then begin to sort of spread your wings a little bit and say, okay, I've gotten past that. Let's now really start exploring and pushing the boundaries and coming to understand of like what this restaurant, you know, should evolve to. Um, Definitely a place, you know, the Rebel I always saw as a place that would continue to grow, that it wasn't going to be that one menu that we opened up with and it would live on for here on out. I mean, the technique and the philosophy remains the same, but, you know, we look to sort of evolve in, in whatever ways we can. Um, I just want to get a little more specific about the food, you know, keeping the notebooks and writing down the ideas or the loose leaf paper. Um, do you have a thought on how many of those dishes uh, you've brought to life in America? And also, like a follow-up, my curiosity is, what's the one that you worked on the most 
to get on the menu. Ooh. Like sometimes you have an idea and, it, you know, it takes you a year or two or three to figure out how to do it. And then, you know, it, it doesn't take you any time to figure out how to do it. It takes you <clears throat> some time to figure out how to make, you know, 50 of them a night or teach people to do it when you're not there. And I, I think the one that probably I put the most work in for the opening menu was uh, an idea of making a, a beet bourguignon, you know, oh, taking yeah. the idea of, you know, your buff bourguignon and then making it a vegetarian dish, but still hitting all those marks. Um, we must have gone through that sauce with like at least 12 different red wines. Like there was such, had this idea of like, okay, we have to nail the type, right type of wine for it. So it really gives it that depth. depth yeah. You know, how do we play with the, the other elements that you would traditionally see in there to make it feel like it's something at least comparable to what the original was. I mean, it's hard to substitute anything for what beef is, but well, yeah. And then the beef broth. And yeah. And so that was definitely one that we played over with over and over again. Um, and it was a fun exercise because it felt like it was one of the dishes that wasn't as straight forward as the others it's a, a lot big of the, seller right yeah and a lot of the other ones sort of just came out of just happenstance it's sort of testing in in your home kitchen sometimes you're limited to what you can do but in those moments there's like wonderful little revelations that create a great dish and sure. you're like oh well i guess i have to use a toaster oven to cook this fish right now it's like okay how am i going to play with this and you're like oh actually this works how can i take right. that same idea and and you know apply it to the big kitchen and right. how do you crank out 50 of them with the same technique and make sure that it's consistent every single time so um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that was a lot of the process, you know. So you guys have just introduced, you know, we said you're at about the two year mark and, um, you know, I think this is something that's going on with a lot of restaurants, certainly in New York city. Um, you know, it is a very competitive, um, moment in, in the restaurant business here. And I think people, we had, we had Amanda Cohen on the show, a couple of times in our first two seasons and you know she had this line i love you know uh that you know i'm paying rent 24 hours a day so i should you know be trying to make money during as much of that time as i can right um but you guys just in the last week you've instituted you have an all-day menu now and you've instituted a uh you have delivery now um can you talk to us about um you know, how uh, you're calling it Little Rebel, I guess, uh, how this uh, differs from the dinner menu that your customers maybe are familiar with um, and what some of the special considerations are uh, for something like a delivery from a restaurant of, of the caliber uh, that Rebel is. Um, well, I guess the, the conversation about delivery probably began six months ago. Uh, what I could never wrap my head around was how do we take the food that we put on a plate and doll up really nicely and deliver that to somebody so that they have the same experience. And it just seemed like it, was, it wasn't going to translate. You know, it's the way that we plate up a certain dish, the way that you eat the components and the sort of the thing that you follow through just wouldn't work. You know, by the time that it gets to the restaurant, uh, by the time it gets to somebody's house, it doesn't look anything like what they may have seen on Instagram or at the restaurant itself. And then it's sort of, uh, the, the concern was a, a disappointment or a letdown. Um, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but the battle, it would seem to me, starts even in, in the packaging, mm -hmm. right? Like it's not on yeah, a plate. Yeah. It's in a rectangular, probably black plastic container with a clear top, snap on top. So, right? Yeah, and That's, and you're, what, already so when you, you're already battling against that. Yeah, no, when you sauce a plate, when you take that chicken jus and you put it into the cardboard, where does it go? How does it, you know, travel? Is it still warm once it gets over there? So, and also was a conversation about how do people really want to eat at home? Uh, what is that, that, that price point that you're looking to pay for? Uh, and so 
we began to look at you know other menus, talk amongst ourselves of what we order, what things that we fell back on, and we understood that we had to do something that was different than what we did at Rebel, and also to a certain extent to sort of allow Rebel to remain Rebel. Um, and have people come to there for a reason than say, no, I can just get this at home. Why bother going over there? So that's where sort of the idea of like Little little Rebel sort of came out of, um, you know, and we talked about food that is handheld, that it's easy to pick up and put down, that travels well, uh, that's the right price point. Right. You know? So what are one or two dishes that you devised for this uh for this mission? Well, I, I kind of, uh, we, we put it as sort of a, a menu that you could sort of piecemeal, that it wasn't that you were going to pay, you know, $28 for a main course. Uh, and we talked about sandwiches a lot. And so there was this, uh, we have four sandwiches on the menu, um, all of them that could be done off the bread and then, in fact, just turn into your main course. And then six vegetable sides that uh, you can sort of add to that. So you can kind of like build your own main course or just have your sandwich in your side, however you may want to look at it. Uh, but the, I guess the, um, the fun part about it is that it's all the same ingredients that we're using at the restaurant. There's no deviation from the quality. It's all about application and how you play with it. You know, we, right. we're doing, you know, a short rib on a celery root puree with pickled celery and celery leaves on our regular menu. But we take that same short rib and we make it into a great sandwich with a horseradish persilade. So it's it's always about representation and how you come across. You know, it's those extra flourishes that you put on a plate that all of a sudden makes people go, oh, that's really fancy. But if you strip it down, the technique remains the technique and the quality remains the quality. So it's like those roasted potatoes that we do that we maybe cook in duck fat and then pan roast afterwards. You know, they look very nice on the chicken plate, but they also taste just as great if you toss them all together and put them into a container and they arrive hot. Right. And the all-day, uh, I mean, the all-day situation, mean, it's kind of new, uh, but what's the sort of vibe that you guys are looking to have? Well, that also comes from, you know, I guess in the same way that Amanda Cohen said, you know, we were open, you know, seven days a week. Right. We're open 24 hours. So right. every hour of the day that you can sort of begin to bring in some revenue to the restaurant is going to be helpful. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's also understanding, um, I guess, the trends of today. You know, we see a lot more people out working in communal spaces uh, that are getting out of the offices that are on their laptops, um, just working remotely, who are looking for a place to exist uh, that is in a, you know, communal environment so you guys are open to that there yeah like if I mean, people come in with a lot that's not it's not shun, that's no, not no uh, no not at all you know what we what we want to continue to build is a place that captures energy and you know you capture energy by having human interaction and people around you and understanding that uh that people are looking for different spaces to exist in and if we can provide them with that and along that have a great cup of coffee and a good morning bread, then hopefully they're going to be happy and they're going to return. And they'll stick around perhaps as late as 5 o'clock and then right. have their cocktail. And then, hell, I could be here for dinner. Right. I mean, we've, we've actually the, – the progression has also been that we opened up for brunch uh, maybe about five, six months ago. And uh, Sundays were open the whole day through. And we saw so many people coming into the space because it's an enormous restaurant and it's spacious. We saw people sitting down at 11 o'clock and having actually two meals there. They would sit down and hang out. Friends would come. They'd leave. they have a bottle of wine. All of a sudden, 11 o'clock came to 3 o'clock. They're like, well, let's just continue sitting here. Yeah. All of a sudden, dinner time came around, and they're like, well, actually, I'll, I'll take a steak. And it was fascinating to see that, that here's this environment that somebody can exist in from morning to night. Right. 
and, and, and not also feel shunned or, you know, that, oh, well, you got to get up and leave. You know, well, this is uh, that's the coolest thing. I was having a conversation with my staff about that this week. We, we had a table on Monday that came in for lunch. And, you know, we stop service between lunch and dinner, like most people do, um, and they and we meet and we talk and we eat and we drink and we have instructions for the night and do drills and whatever we do. But we take a half an hour out and we don't talk to the guests. <laughs> so we say to the guests, listen, um, you can stay here as long as you want. We're going to not talk to you and serve you for a little while. They're like, couldn't care less. You're going to turn the music off? No, no, no. We'll leave the music on. All right. Fill up their glasses. Here we go. So I said to my staff, hey, how, how many times have you guys done that? Like, let's have some stories about this because I was just in Europe with some chef friends not that long ago. And whenever I, I go out with them or in Europe with them, I always have an experience like that. We never plan it. You know, it's never like, let's go to the River Cafe at 11 and leave at 11. You know, <laughs> but it's happened. I've done it four or five, six times. But, you know, I, I'm a cook, right? So I can't. So I was talking to my staff about it, and half of them were like, no, no, no. I've never done that. I would feel rude and awkward about it. And the other half were like, dude, that's the thing we do now. <laughs> I was like, this is well, fascinating. I mean, the other funny thing is, you know, as a, as, a, as, a free, as a writer, right, you know, every writer in New York knows the hotel lobbies. Yeah, yeah. You know, with there's, all the sacred service. places. Yes, exactly. Um, the, the forget breakfast Starbucks. Joints. They're too right. crowded. You know, you, it's, forget it. Um, you know, I used to belong to a place called the Soho House in New York City. Sure. It's kind of the vibe you're describing, which was, um, uh, you know, you could go there, take like a table. Clubhouse style. It was like a clubhouse. You'd yeah. take a table, do some work. Maybe somebody would come meet you at some point for a coffee. Maybe somebody would come a little later and meet you for a lunch meeting. And you would just be at this. T the table became like your de facto office yeah. for the day. It's kind of cool because it, some people treat it like their office and they're like, you know, they're the godfather. And people come to them and sit at their table and break bread and tell stories. And, well, and the thing also, it. I mean, for me, we're about, you guys have a it's a huge space. Yeah, we so, uh, can seat easily 120 people. And that's with a lot of space in between tables. You know, right. And what time do you guys start now? Uh, we start at 8 o'clock in the morning. Wow. That's crazy. And it goes straight through. Straight through, yep. Uh, there is also the break that we do between 3 and 5 o'clock. Uh, and that's, you know, for the same reason, setting up for dinner service. Sure. But, uh, you know, I, probably the evolution will be that we just continue staying open through those times. And it's just... Right. Well, during those times, do you offer delivery or do you full shutdown? We offer delivery during those times as well. So it is straight service, but there's a shutdown in, inside the building. Yeah, inside the building Got just it. to sort of reset, revamp. You know, back of the house, front of the house is arriving for the dinner shift, and uh, everyone's kind of coming into their own. But Sunday, you go straight through, straight through. Sunday, we, we go straight through, and we close the kitchen at 9. So it's also, we looked at it in that respect of, you know, people come in and just allow them to be, you know, this, especially, you know, where we're located, the idea, you know, I actually really came from my sister. My sister was complaining to me that we closed our brunch at 3 o'clock, and she said, I don't get out of bed until one thirty. Right. I don't want to go yeah, to yoga. I, I hear that all. And I, I live in Williamsburg. I can, can't get there until 3.30. I was like, oh, all right, cool. Well, let's see what I can do. And, you know, we've we've kept it open. And, I mean, that in conjunction with, you know, the the wine program that we do and what those brunches have become, you know, people come in at, you know, 4.30 to sit down, get that last bite. They had, it's like the early dinner that people are looking at. Yeah. The early bird special is, you know, it's at 4.30 more so than 5.30 on a Sunday. Right. And I think that also has to do with culture and what like Sunday nights have become for so many people where it's like everyone's at home and they're watching their HBO shows and, yes. you know, so it's capture them in the daytime and hopefully make up for the lack of late night dining that there used to be maybe, you know, 10 years ago. Did you have to 
tweak, change, alter the dinner menu to be able to go straight from brunch into dinner without breaking down the kitchen and setting up different menus? No, no, no. It was a uh, it was a pretty pretty fluid transition. Um, do you know. have like the same team or do the team switch? No, we have the same team. So, I mean, the great thing is that, you know, Saturday night, everyone leaves their station set up. They come in at 11, start cooking and, you know, usually you're out of there by 930. Got it. So for, I mean, a cook a 10 hour day, that's a, that's a short day, I think. Right. Uh, we are talking with Chef Daniel Eddy of Rebel Restaurant in New York City. And we are going to take a short break and come back and talk a little more when the front burner with Jimmy and Andrew comes back after the break. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Welcome back to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. We're talking with Chef Daniel Eddy of Rebel Restaurant in New York City. Uh, Before we go any further, I just have to say we took the fall off and we've been a little rusty since we came back. We have forgotten to thank our engineer, David. He's laughing in the booth. The last, I don't, I don't think we've thanked him on one show yet this season. Thank so, you, David. Not, David, one, not one. David, not one. Tell us about your commute today. <laughs> you had train delays. Yeah, it wasn't as bad as I expected. Actually, the L train was just. I think they were having some kind of signal problems at Union Square, so it took a little while to switch over to going back to Brooklyn with this one train. But other got than it. that, it wasn't too bad. All right. Well, thank you for being here, David. You got in it the, in the in the in the. Muck of New York today. That's, why I, that's why I get the big bucks. That's yeah. why you get the big bucks. Um, yeah, we were joking when we came in that I felt a little bit like we were in the uh, bunker in the in the thing, uh, yes. in the the Arctic outpost. Um, <laughs> so, can we just talk for a minute about? Uh, um, uh, you know, do a little shop talk segment here, I guess, about... Um, is, this a, a, is this your version of a, a closer look? This is my version of a closer look. Yes, uh, but without the venom. Without the snark. Without venom. the venom. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just love to talk about, you know, we were saying before, this is, you know, as you like to say, Jimmy, this is a... Show must go on. Business that you guys are in, um, uh, you know, it's it's very rare. I mean, I'm for me, I think about in New York, you know, the the two big s- superstorms, or trop- you know, we had Sandy and Irene in the last several years. Um, right. You know, restaurants closed for that. Um, uh, there was that big blackout, I think, in the early two, like two thousand two or two thousand four. 
four? Yeah, it was uh, the Summer Mermaid Inn open. It was 2003. It was August. Three. Yeah. You know, that caused a lot of problems and refrigerators weren't working and things like that. Um, mass, but, mass beer consumption. That <laughs> sold more beer in New York that night than. But what, you know, we all, you know, people get days off. Their kids have snow days. They go to a restaurant. The restaurant's open. Yeah. The restaurant's open. Um, where where does that come from for you guys? Is it just something that's sort of you, you're indoctrinated into that way of thinking from the time you start? And what what are some of the special things that might happen? Whether it's um, you know delivery issues, uh, staff uh, transportation issues. What are, what what were, what are the extra things that go into being open on a day like today when it happens? Well. I'll, I'll I'll just briefly say something, and then we can uh, go back and forth. Uh, I'm sure Daniel has lots to add to this, but you know, show goes on. There's a couple couple fields that do it. You know, uh, these are people that you're going to see at work on holidays. Uh, they're going to miss graduations, and you know, perhaps even the birth of children and things like that. Uh, live sports, right? All the time. Uh, live theater, right? Doctors and nurses. Uh, people in the hospitality business, whether right. they're hotel workers or not, you know. So the way I kind of look at it is we do it because we want to do it. So really, we want to fight. We want to compete. We want to be at our jobs. We don't want the day off. We never ask for the day off. And because it's snowing, we're pissed off that people consider it a day off. We want it. We want it more than other people because we're never, ever looking to not be there. We want to be there to do the thing we do and to show people how we do it and how well we do it. So I guess it's the fire in the belly. You pick, listen, these jobs find you or you pick them, but it's one or the other. Like you don't, it's a choice and there's a, a, a ton of sacrifice that goes into it. These are supreme pay your dues jobs. You know, a doctor in a residency, two, three years of working, being on call 24 hours a day. So when you go through that kind of mindset and you have that kind of training and then, you know what else? This is a key thing. These are all team sports. Every show goes on situation is a team sport. Team sport you're only as good as your weakest moment, you know? So you're fired up to compete. You're fired up to do what you do and to show people what you do. So when somebody says you should take a day off, you're like, yeah, why? What do you think? I agree with um, a lot of that. I think that also one of the things that is, you know, we, we're in the hospitality industry and it's understanding sort of what that word means. Uh, you know, so often we're, you know, restaurants are a place where people walk into to get away from whatever it could be or to find a moment of joy. And there's always this uh, this fear of, you know, that when that guest comes up to the door and they find out that it's locked, they just, you know, we're just like, well, damn, okay, this place is not open or it's it won't be the place that I'm going to have this experience. And they find that other place and then they fall in love with that and that becomes their their home you know, it's always trying to capture those sort of moments. You know, it's we want to see guests smile. We want to see them leave with a sense of enjoyment and fulfillment and gratitude. You know, because we, we do this, we do this and we kill ourselves for this business because we're trying to make people happy. And any missed opportunity, regardless of the weather, is a missed opportunity that just sort of can set us back from just moving forward and, and making us feel fulfilled. You know, I kind of always think it's it's like that uh the one of the in the last episodes of the sopranos where you know the couple comes into the kitchen and you know the kitchen is closed and you know chef's like okay i'm not gonna cook it. and kitchen's closed all he's furious and he peers through the window and he sees this like couple that just came in they're 
looking for a place and he's like okay let me just cook for them and you know to be those people at that table to sort of feel right. that, that care and that love that somebody's putting in because it is like you said something that we chose to do something that we're passionate about and when you're passionate about something when you have that flame it's something that's just always burning. You're not just going to like turn it on and off. Yeah, and you got to be open to show it. Exactly. Well, does it? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of a few things right now. One is, uh, you know, Jimmy and I have an old friend. He used to work with Jimmy. He was the chef at the Harrison, Brian B. Strong. Ah, uh, yes. And Brian had reached a point in his career where a lot of people were no longer work a Saturday service. And Brian loved working Saturday service. And the great thing about Brian is, I've almost never met a chef who gets to a certain critical acclaim and badass culinary prowess. You know, uh, who decides to work the line instead of work the pass. And by that, you know, usually a lot of times the chef will, it's the coach. The coach stands on the sidelines. So they stand and they tell you what to do and they receive everything you're doing and organize it for the waiters and so on. Brian was like, you know what? I'm a cook. I don't, I don't want to do that. Saturday night, I work. I worked the saute station. I was like, yeah, I got a lot of respect for you, man. You're a badass. Yeah, but he, you know, he also wanted to, I don't think he'd mind me saying this, he wanted to know he could still keep up. Oh, well, we all, you, you know, know want to do uh, that. But we, you do that once a month instead of, you know. Every week. Yeah. But I wonder if, you know. Or, and, or when none of the cooks show up. You know? Well, the other thing is, I'll, be, I'll say this for me, you know, we, we restarted the show in January at a time when, you know, things, look, I don't want to get specific, but. You know, it's 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 uh it's not the most fun time in the country right now. There's a lot of um, angst. There's a lot, a lot of, of other news besides culinary. There's a lot and of news behind news. right. And <laughs> I will say that today, with the snow, um, with this idea of meeting you know Daniel, who we'd never met, I okay. I was really excited to come in today. And I wonder, does you know when you when you have these adverse conditions like like the weather today does that make it a little more sweeter to to do what you got you know i think about cooks i know who like you know the badge of honor of like a brutal saturday night service you know one per it's very easy to start to sound a little cliched and and over romanticized about this stuff but is this an element of it that you're coming through at a time when sort of you know you have to kind of everything's a little bit harder well it's always the thing that you expect people to count you out and then you show up and then you're like, oh well, okay, here we go. Right. Um, you know, you have to you have to show up. Uh yeah, regardless of the temperament. There will be restaurants that are closed today, right? Yeah. There will be. Yes. Lots of them. The ones that aren't are going to capitalize on that, hopefully, uh, by not just increased patronage, but by touching those people in, in ways that Daniel spoke about really eloquently and forming uh, helping them form decisions in their mind about who they'll choose to go to next and why. Yeah, exactly. It's always about sort of, you know, like you said, the next time. Well, there is that magic moment, right, on a day like today. Even, um, you know, I remember years ago, I was telling you guys before the show, when I was a college student in New York, and there was a major, I think it was the only day in the four years I was in college that this, the school I went to actually closed. And going down to Tortilla Flats restaurant, and you know there was a forty-five minute wait. Right, right. Well, and and today, this morning, I didn't call ahead. We always meet at the Swallow Cafe around the corner from Roberta's and kind of prep for the show. Right. I did not call ahead. I took it on faith that they would be open. And there, they were. There is that moment when you go to a restaurant on a day like today, and you push the door, and it opens. Yeah. Right. There isn't. That isn't. That is a magical moment when you're like these people showed up for me. 
it's warm in here. Oh, they're on. gonna they're gonna serve me, and I'm gonna have this bit of normalcy. Let me speak to that in a different way. Sure. Nine eleven. I got the red cat. Red cat's a year and a half old. I bought the Harrison in April two thousand one. Our opening date was September seventeenth. We were gonna make it. We were on schedule. September 11th happened. We weren't. Subsequently, we got the Harrison open October 26th, but that's not part of the story. So we should say that the Harrison was in Tribeca, not a eight, whole, eight blocks, eight not blocks very north far. of Ground Zero. Right. And we were in construction. I was there. I was there the whole time 9-11 was going down. I got there at 7 in the morning. I left there about 1045 after the second tower had fallen. And there was no cell phone reception. There was no phone reception. I went back to the Red Cat. Answered as many phone calls as I could from employees, from, you know, one vendors, blah, blah, blah. It was a busy day. But when I got back to the Red Cat, there was people there, you know, concerned about the company or us or whatever. And they were like, what do you what do you do? What do you do? And I said, you know, my first instinct was leave me alone. Let me deal with some of this. And then one of them was like, hey, there's people that are there was mass exodus from lower Manhattan up the west side highway. All the streets were closed. People literally walked from Tribeca to Westchester, you know, thousands and thousands of people. No cell phone reception, no taxis, no cars, you know, whatever. So I um, people want to use our bathroom. So I'm like, yeah, OK, absolutely. Then then I just look at everybody and I'm like, all right, this is what we do. We now are a bar, and we don't charge anybody for anything. We got $50,000 worth of booze laying around at any moment. Give anybody anything they want and give them proper service, you know. And then when it comes time for a check, tell them there's no check. So that was all that day. And then, you know, we were, we, we were closed for two or three days at the Red Cat. I don't remember why, but I basically just... I got deliveries, so I I made sandwiches. I must have made 30,000 sandwiches, you know, and just was giving them out. Like, I would buy the bread in the in the plastic bag and make the sandwiches and put the sandwiches back in the plastic bag and be handing people bags of 12 sandwiches. Right. And saying, sit down at the table. And if you want a beer, drink a beer. If you want a soda, drink a soda. And we're, we'll, we're going to serve you. And um, still to this day, often, people are like, dude, you don't know me. But this thing that day, this is what it was. This is what you did. This is how it, you know, it's pretty neat. Because to me, it was a, everything is a, like, I don't remember any of it. It's just, it's just, everything yeah. went by me. You know, I couldn't capture the, the details, but the feeling that we put out that, that, that Daniel was talking about. And, you know, listen, I didn't set out to do any of it. It was a complete reaction. But, you know, what happened is still today, our guests come in and they're like, you <laughs> You don't remember me, but this is it. Yeah. I guess we're really so much of an industry about creating memories, you know, and I think that that's something that we all value. I know we've we've all spoken fondly of things that happened, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And whenever you can, I mean, we think about our, our childhoods and how we congregated probably around a kitchen table and what food meant for us and how they helped us sort of form these thoughts that we look back on and make us happy. You know, we try to sort of do the same through food and through restaurants and what was for you, Daniel? What was your? I mean, when you look back and uh, to when you were a kid, and uh, you know, you I, I'm always curious to know, you know, the first sort of little, whether you recognize it at the time or not, um, the first sort of you know little pinch or or tug that started you toward this thing that you do now, uh, whether you would call it cooking, food in general going to restaurants like what was the sort of spark that started you in into what you do now professionally 
it was the first day that I staged at, at Oneta. Now, that was when it clicked. But I'd been cooking prior to that. You know, high school, I have the memories of inviting friends over and just cooking food and feeding people. And, you know, then before that, it was, you know, growing up in Nicaragua, you know, after being born here in the city and living down there for five years of just the smell of tortillas being made in the kitchen and the pot of uh, beans being cooked and the importance of food on the table. Um, so it's there's that progression where it's like at four years old, I can remember and smell and, and taste vividly what we were having and eating there and the evolution of coming back here to New York and wanting to continue to share that with friends and family. And then right. all of a sudden realizing, you know, after a couple of years of university and feeling a bit lost that here was something that I've loved my whole life and I could actually make a career out of it. Um, and and that was sort of like the revelation and yeah. in that moment of being in that kitchen, it sort of clicked. Like, I love this energy. It was fast paced. And I knew what the end result was, was food on a plate that was hitting uh, a patron and hopefully making them happy. And yeah. That's, yeah. Is that something that's, you know, in, in a city, you know, in an urban environment, in a competitive environment, um, and a place that moves pretty fast and a place where cooks tend to come and go sometimes pretty fast. Is it hard for you to sort of hold on to that um, orientation? I mean, is that something that you, it seems very, as you're sitting here talking to me about it, it seems very vivid for you still. Um, is that something that's hard to hold on to on a day-to-day basis or is it always sort of there for you, that compass? It's, it's always there. Uh, as long as the stove is on and there's something that's cooking, it it resonates. It's 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 something that's just sort of embedded into your identity. It's we're programmed, and it's hard to like deprogram oneself just because you have a bad day. Yeah, it's you know you just keep on fighting and fighting and pushing. And yeah, I think that goes back to sort of the idea of like the reward of of a rough Saturday night service where everyone sort of gets beat up, and at the end of it, they're like, "All right, we live to see another day." Right. And there's there's joy in that, you know, and so but it's hard, you know, you learn tough lessons, uh, but you also learn about resilience. And we've talked about this earlier on today that, you know, this is so much about a marathon, about understanding that you really have to be resilient and you have to, you know, pace yourself well to see, you know, a full career of this. You know, if this is something that you really love and makes you happy at your core and you know that this is what you want to continue on for the doing for the rest of your life, then it's all about taking measured steps and, and, and fighting through those tough times. Yeah. It's funny also, you know, you mentioned like creating memories. You know, for me, I've never cooked in a professional kitchen, but when you, you know, the relationships that are forged in kitchens through these, you know, people talk about like, you know, uh, like, you know, they talk about like we're war buddies, you know, or things like this. For me, those relationships where I used to work in the film business, you know, and in college I did a lot of theater and the the sort of, the intensity that comes out of going through those kinds of experiences together, like you said, Jimmy, show go, you know, show must go on. I forgot Environments to say like live I, radio in that or live radio. Live radio. Listen, David, again, live radio. Bit. Well, right. I mean, we had we had a, a show last year where we had a million technical difficulties. Or when we did our tribute to Josh Ozerski. Amazing. I'll never, I'll never forget the five minutes leading up to airtime, and the five of the best, uh, most interesting problem solving minutes yeah. I've seen. But that tends to relationships tend to really solidify under those circumstances. I think. I mean, I still have people I did yeah. college theater with who I. 
it you goes know, back to the team sport thing. Yeah, you know? there are bonds that form through that. You go through the thing with the people. Well, you can't do anything alone, so you have your team and you yeah. go through the thing with your team. You know, a lot of what I'm saying kind of reminds me of the military. You have people that do tours of duty and re-up for more tours of duty who have, you know, lots of obligations at home, family, right. you know, and then why? And they're like, because, you know, my, my brethren are out there, so... Um, our guest today has been Chef Daniel Eddy of Rebel Restaurant, which we hope everybody will go and yeah, let's patronize. Go. Let's do it. At just about any time of day or night. Uh, <laughs> Daniel, thank you for being here. It was great meeting you. And, Absolutely. Uh, thank you, guys. We owe you one. Real pleasure. We owe you one. Thanks for coming out in the snow. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, it was great having you. And uh, you can follow Jimmy at Red Cat New York on Twitter. You can follow... NY, Red Card NYC, excuse me, Red Cat NYC. Uh, you can follow me at Tokeland Andrew. Uh, you can follow the show at Chef Podcast. We're also on Facebook, The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. And with that, Jimmy, we did it. We did a show today. Well, it was never in doubt. No, not, no, not at all. <laughs> all right. David, again, thank you for engineering and piloting our ship. And we will see or hear you all back here. Next week on The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.